Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. So, this is going to be a hot mic, and I wanted to get into some things just to remind people of what we're fighting against and for. But then this happened. We're going to begin this hour, though, of course, with that breaking news out of Tennessee, another mass shooting at an American school. This time, a Christian elementary school in Nashville. Police say a female shooter killed three children and three adults. She was then killed by police. With us right now, NBC News correspondent Steve Patterson, Justice and Intelligence correspondent Ken Delanian, and White House correspondent Monica Alba. Steve, let's start with you. Some new details emerging about what happened, including a revelation just moments ago from the police chief saying he thought the shooter was a student at the school at what point at one point what all do we know right now yeah uh this would be the second news briefing that we've had with more promise just want to recap where we are three students killed three adults killed in that school the covenant school a private christian school uh at about 10 13 and this is new from police 10 13 is when they heard the shots fired they responded immediately according to the chief the suspected shooter that 28 year old female nashville resident uh killed by 1027. We also know uh, a little bit more that she may have been an ex-student, as you mentioned, at that school. We don't know when that would have been. Um, we know the age range, of course, pre-K through six years old. Uh, so you can do the math. Heartbreaking to hear that. Uh, heartbreaking to hear uh, really from the community that is starting to speak out, too, learning about the horror of what happened inside. Just to recap again, the suspected shooter was believed to have entered through a side door. The police chief just saying, though, that he believes that all doors were locked. So that speaks to, again, how she was able to get inside. When she made access, went to the first floor, then the second floor. In the second floor, there is a vestibule-type area, possibly something like a hallway or a lobby. That is where police engaged her, but that was after the shots were fired on those victims. Um, the police chief said that he was moved to tears to see some of the students exiting, to see probably some of the victims exiting, some of the victims that were carried out of that school. We know that there was a five-member police team that engaged the suspect in that in that exchange of fire or that one-sided uh, fire on the, the victim that she, or the suspect, excuse me, that she was killed and struck and neutralized at that point. And that's when students started reuniting in busloads with um, their parents, taken off-site to a place where they're still reuniting with parents uh, at this time. We know now that police do have video evidence from inside that school. That will be a primary uh, locator of what they're going to be focused on as far as pushing forward with the investigation, as will, of course, the suspected shooter. And we know now from this latest briefing that police not only know who she is, they know her age, they know her name, they know where she is, they also know her home, and they have police stationed there as well. And that is all part of the investigation, of course. But back to that school and hearing the emotion from not only the chief and not only some of the people that were with the chief, flanking the chief, law enforcement officials that were on site because this was an officer-involved shooting, uh, but also from the parents and from witnesses who say they heard and saw uh, some of the people that were there. And also that one woman thought maybe it was just a bomb threat, but it ended up being a shooting. Listen to this. I thought maybe it was a bomb threat. 
And then there's just there was so many police cars. And then the ambulances started coming away from the school. And that's when I had heard there was a school shooting. And there's no words. My dad just woke me up this morning and told me that my mom said there was a shooter at the school. And then I texted her and I said just like what was going on. She said she was hiding in the closet and that there was shooting all over. Just shock. Like, I don't know how somebody could go through with doing something like that. And especially children, like just it's disgusting. Again, as we've been making note of, this is a, a small private Christian school. They likely didn't have the same security presence that maybe a larger public school would have. But in this latest briefing, we did hear that they did have protocols in place that, as the chief said, would have been far worse if they didn't. If they take. So. As you heard. Um, three children along with three adults were murdered in a school today. And, you know, when I remember Sandy Hook, right? And I remember seeing President Obama crying and I remember seeing people just outraged that it was like, you know, it's one thing in a high school. And as tragic as a high school is, because it's like these young people are about to take that next journey to college or to their to the military or to a vocation, they were about to enter that adulthood phase of their life. But when you talk about kids that haven't even gotten to the high school part of their life, their whole, literally their whole life was supposed to be ahead of them. And now there's three children. And, and I want people to focus in. This was, this is a school at the covenant Presbyterian church just outside of Nashville. And the school was pre-K to six years old, right? That's what they were saying. Now, they may have meant sixth grade because it was 200-something students at the school. It's a, lot of, it's a lot of kids at a private school if it's just for pre-K and kindergarten. Um... So these were babies. We don't, as of me recording this, I don't know what the ages of the children are that died or the age of the adults. We do know the age of the shooter and it was a female. 28 years old. Don't know the identity. They haven't revealed the race or anything like that as I'm coming on air with this. But more than likely, she was white. The school is predominantly white. 
here, here, you know, and then of course, and this is the thing that really aggravates me, right? Because, um, you know, the the elected leaders in in that state in Tennessee in and Nashville is the capital. They're they're Republicans. And they're trying they're the Republicans of this new age, not the Republicans that you and I grew up either supporting or debating. Right? In my case, debating. It's these new age folks, these folks that more from the Tea Party into the MAGA, into whatever, whatever, con, you know, contortion it is now that just doesn't follow, that just doesn't follow, that just doesn't follow. And you can, you can add in logic, reason, sanity, you can just whatever to finish that sentence, but they just don't follow. They don't track as far as basic human concerns are. Uh, but these people will say, and, and, it, and it's gotten to the point, you know, we've, we've messed words up so much where now woke is a bad word. You know, liberal was already, you know, they tried to spin it as a bad word. Being woke is a bad word or a bad thing. It's supposed to be a racial slur. So is I'm proud to be white or it's okay to be white. Now that's that's a racial slur. I mean, you know, so we've been twisting words. You know, Black Lives Matter is a slur. We've been twisting words for a while in our political game. But the worst thing that we have contorted is thoughts and prayers. We have taken, taken a normal sign of condolence, a normal sign of empathy. And it's been politicized in such a way that it's like, if somebody hears a politician say thoughts and prayers, people get pissed off. People get angry. Why do you why why do you say that, Eric? Because that's true. You know it. Because the Republican folks, the pro NRA folks. Now, full disclosure: when I ran for federal office, I got A ratings from the NRA. I'm not opposed to people, citizens having arms, but. I'm not to the extreme where it's like I ignore the actual wording of the Second Amendment. We'll get into that in a minute. You know, but it's like these these folks that know they're not going to do anything legislatively to protect our children, right? 
they're not going to do anything to protect our children. And, um, but they're going to offer their thoughts and prayers. And it really, Sandy Hook was really that turning point because everybody thought for sure that when people were walking into elementary schools and killing babies, killing our, our youngest children, that, okay, that's the line that's going to be drawn in the sand. That's it. And let's be honest. Can we be honest? We thought because they were white kids from Connecticut that they were going to do something about it, that that was the last straw. If that had happened in Mississippi or in Atlanta or in Chicago, you know, any major urban center where it had been a majority black school, no, because you saw how flippant they were in Uvalde when we were talking about Latino kids. They didn't even go into the school to protect those children. The police didn't. They didn't even bother to go in. It was like they were watching or listening for popcorn in the microwave. You know how you 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 wait till the pop starts slowing down before you decide to take it out? That's the way the police officers in Texas handled the situation in Uvalde. They were they were hoping and praying that the shooting would stop before they could go in. Because they were Latino kids and they didn't care. They busy playing Keystone Cop instead of doing their job. Now, those officers that went in in Nashville, they did their job. They went in without full body armor, all that stuff. They went in and responded. There were two officers that would normally patrol the area, got the call, responded to the call, went in and engage the shooter before SWAT or anybody else could mobilize. Right? And this all happened in a span of minutes. Within 14 minutes of the call, everything was over. So those officers did their job. But again, disclaimer, white children. And you can say what you want to say about me and my opinion and all that, but 58 years of observation leads me to these conclusions. Now, if you've had 58 years on the other side, looking at it from rose-colored glasses, okay, I give it, I give that to you. But for those of us who've been looking with plain glasses, plain 2020 vision, You know, people responded. Now, it may have been quality of police department. may not have been a racial thing. It may have been the fact that the Nashville police officers understand their duty and their job, where those wads in Texas like to play tough. But they didn't know what to do when the bullets were really flying. And if their feelings are hurt, if anybody was related to those people with feelings are hurt, those police officers... I do not give a damn because children died because of their incompetence and their lack of courage. So the last thing they're alive. So they should be happy about that. 
And when they get a backbone, don't try to get it on me. Get it the next time somebody tries to shoot up children in a school. Then you can prove to me that you have courage. Don't don't buck on me. Don't do that. Or anybody else that criticizes you. <sighs> anyway. So, yeah. So, you know, we've had another mass shooting. And after what happened in Sandy Hook, you know, people just thought, okay, that now we're going to, we're going to get down to some sensible laws that fall within the scope of the second amendment that fall within the part that says well-regulated. See, I notice folks like to use the shall not be infringed part. That's where the indignancy comes out. It's like, you can't infringe it. That's why Madison was brilliant enough at the beginning to say, well-regulated. You have a right to have a weapon. But in that Second Amendment, there's got to be some rules you got to follow. You got to know how to use the weapon. You got to know how to aim the weapon. You got to know how to clean the weapon. You got to know how to be responsible with the weapon or the arms. Can't just just walk up in a store, say, I want that. And that's it. You never shot nothing before. Ain't never practiced. None of that. Barely even know how to load it. You trying to watch a movie. Okay. I mean, you can learn anything on YouTube. I get it. But YouTube can't shoot it for you. You got to be able to shoot that thing. And what's the use of having a weapon that you can't use? You don't even know. You just want to intimidate somebody. I need it for my protection. You might need to protect yourself because you need to learn how to use the weapon. You know, and I know people that don't know how to use a weapon. I watch these people, you know, they, they, carry and all this stuff they get in these fancy you know holsters that match their boots and all this kind of stuff you know they be trying to get the sweatshirts where you can conceal and all that and you got the pants you got tucked in your pants and all that all i'm telling you is i i know the folks that don't know what they're doing based on what i can see you want to tote it? Okay, fine. Probably not going to survive a gunfight with me or some of my friends if it came down to it because you don't know what you're doing. You don't even know how to holster it, let alone use it. And as a bet, but you want to have you want you want to have the right to carry it. You want to have the right to do anything. Let me let me flip some on y'all real quick. Sounds like I'm going on these tangents, right? Because I'm just tired. I'm tired of the re- these Republicans that believe because the the NRA position shouldn't be extreme. Because all they're trying to the initial intent of the National Rifle Association was to sell rifles. They were supposed to be a lobbyist. So you take the Second Amendment position because you want everybody to have a 
and then buy a gun and buy as many as they can because they're still making them. You know, we got more guns than we got people in the United States. Right? So, you know, that that was the whole purpose. And then it became more of this political arm. But then you got more radical groups like the Gun Owners of America and all these other people out here that if the NRA bends a little bit, then these folks step in and say, no, 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 no. We can't have any restrictions. That's wrong. That's not what the amendment says. The first words, a well-regulated, then it gets into militia. Then you want to say, well, they're just talking about, no, the militia was you. The same citizens is that y'all were the militia. Because we didn't want one military people in our cribs, right? Actual army people from any side. But we had to be ready in case, you know, back then if the British decided, hey, and they did come back in the war 1812, they came back. The fear was justified. They came back. But they, the purpose was to make sure that every citizen could defend themselves against another British invasion. That was the main purpose. And then it evolved. Once that threat was eliminated, it evolved into protecting your property and your life. But it never changed the concept that it shouldn't be regulated. No, we don't want to infringe on your right. We want you to be able to get a gun, but we need to have some regulations. We need to have regulations to make sure that people that beat on their spouses, you know, on a regular basis, shouldn't have access to a weapon. People that threaten to kill other people or masses of people, like the guy that, committed the, the, the acts of terrorism in Buffalo. He told people he wanted to do a mass shooting. Not only did he get a psych evaluation and get cleared, he was able to buy a weapon, several. You need a law that says that can't happen. If, if, if a person cannot buy a weapon, because they've committed domestic abuse, then a person definitely shouldn't be able to get a weapon if they make a terroristic threat as far as a mass shooting is concerned. If you make a terroristic threat to an individual, you 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 get flat you can't get a weapon. Right? In in most states. But not if you say, well, I just want to shoot up a church. I want to shoot up a store. There's no penalty for that. I was just joking. Oh, I didn't really mean it. And then he turns around and shoots up a store. That's where the real, well-regulated part comes in. You need to have rules and regulations so that people can safely, responsibly, 
bear arms. Now, here's a trick for you. Because some people get into the argument with them and say, well, you know, uh, you got to get a license to drive. And the gun rights folks say, well, driving is a privilege. It's not a constitutional right to drive. That is true. It is not a constitutional right to drive. It's not a constitutional right to have a car. And a car can be used as a weapon. So there are regulations. You have to get a license. You have to do this and do that. But here's something I need the gun toters to understand. Being able to carry your gun outside of your property is a privilege. It is not a right. It is not part of your Second Amendment right. It is not part of your Second Amendment right to have the gun on your person. That is a privilege. If it was understood, then there wouldn't be any laws needed to say, okay, well, you some states you have to have a permit, other states, no, you don't need to have a permit. You have permission because you've been given a privilege. It is not your constitutional right to carry that gun outside of your house or outside of your car. That's it. If the gun travels with you, he travels with you in your vehicle where your vehicle is considered your property. And you have a right to protect your property. Now you say, well, I got a right to protect my life. You can make that argument. But if that was really the case, then these folks wouldn't create these laws so you could do it. It would be understood in the Second Amendment that you could do it. Because these people are not crazy as they try to put themselves off to be. They understand legality. They understand the difference between right and privilege. If it was really a right to have that gun anywhere you wanted to have it, then there wouldn't be laws to determine whether you can carry it out on the street or not, on your person, whether you can carry it concealed or open. They wouldn't even have that debate because anything beyond your premises, which is either your house or your vehicle, is a privilege at that point. It is not a right. It is a privilege that you are able to walk downtown Atlanta, downtown Jackson, Mississippi, Downtown, well, you can't do it in downtown Chicago, but downtown Birmingham, anywhere where they say it's open carry, the minute that you leave your house and walk down the street, that becomes a privilege. It is not a right. Try it in court. Try it. Try it. It's not your right. Your right is only to your property, which is either your car or your home. The minute that you carry that weapon outside of that domain, it's a privilege. Period. And we need to limit the privilege. And we need to limit what kind of weapons can be privileged. If you want to walk around with a handgun, okay, that's reasonable. 
because most people can carry it like in a bag or in a purse or holstered properly on their person. Makes sense. That's why the first weapon that you have as a, as a law enforcement officer is to be able to draw that that pistol, for lack of a better term, a gun, right? Whether it's a Glock, a Sig, whatever. That's why you have that on your person. As a law enforcement officer, that's your first thing. Now, if you can get to the trunk of your car, if you have a rifle or something else, a little more firepower, okay. But at that moment, when the bullets first started flying, like those officers in Nashville had to encounter, at least they had their weapon, their automatic weapon with them. But you as a regular citizen, you haven't taken any class officially certified by the state that you live in to show that you have been properly trained to use it, to get that exemption that law enforcement gets. So what the legislatures in these states have done is just given you that privilege. They just gave it to you because they act like they don't know and the way that they try to talk and sell the message that they don't know the difference between a privilege and a right, but they do or else they wouldn't go through the machinations of creating legislation for you to do that. And it's just amazing to me that in a state where you allow open carry to happen, 28-year-old woman walks into an elementary school and kills children. It's amazing to me because it seems like that if you would pass a law like that, you would think that the citizens in your state would be certifiable. That's, I mean, well, I shouldn't, let me say this. They should be considered sane. Seems like you should have done like a thorough background check of every citizen to make sure that nobody would do something heinous and crazy like that, male or female, black or white. Nobody would do that in your state. That's why you felt safe to have that passed. And the people on the other side to say, well, there you go again and you talking about, you know, and there's only so many deaths and all that. The number one cause of death for children in the United States is gun violence. Three more children were killed today. So at what point do we understand that one death, one, especially of a child, doesn't matter if it's from a mass shooting or a drive-by shooting gone bad in the inner city. One child dies is too many. One. 
one child dying should have been enough for people to say, screw the lobbyist, we got to do some work. They'll get over it. It's like, how, how, how do you let people who write you a check control your life politically? How do you do that? How do you let them control the decisions that you make? It's not their right to give you a check. It's a privilege that you get for maybe being an incumbent or running for an office. They ain't got to give you a check. And you ain't you don't have to accept it. But you let it dictate you. You let it dictate how you respond. And people are literally dying because you don't have the courage or the backbone to tell people writing a check, nah, bruh. I'm not we're not doing that today. No. I mean, I've made the NRA mad. I've supported stuff that they wanted and I've gone against stuff that they wanted. And when I ran for the United States, I got an A rating. Now they gave my opponents A pluses because that's what they do. But the, the reality is, is that I ain't opposed to the second amendment because I understand what it actually says. I'm opposed to the nut jobs that are controlling the purse strings and the ears of a particular political party. Since the Republicans want to be sensitive and have the nerve to call us snowflakes, right? (laughs) You know, you, you, I'm opposed to I'm opposed to people that believe that death is okay. Don't send me condolences when you basically help pull the trigger. That's why thoughts and prayers offends people now. That phrase. Because people feel that you basically pulled the trigger. Because and it's not just the gun rhetoric alone. It's the white supremacy rhetoric, period. This whole notion about white folks are better than everybody else. They're smarter. They're prettier. They're this, they're that. No, you're not. You are a human being just like everybody else. And we'll we'll get into the system stuff on the other side. But I, I'm just... People lost hope about certain people doing the right thing when they saw that white children, elementary school children, did not matter to them. That's when people lost hope. When you see a president of the United States crying, he's not just crying because of the loss of life. He's crying because he knows he's powerless to do anything because you have a block of folks that are corrupted by their lack of courage and morality to do the right thing. 
And that's sad. That's that's really, really sad. You know, <laughs> I just, that's what makes this tragedy really, really tragic. That there's, there's no hope that people are going to do the right thing. None. And that's got to change. At some point, that's, that's just got to change. If that means, and I'm not down with one party totally controlling everything. You know, I mean, like every particular seat, like from the governor down to dog catcher, I don't, I don't think that's a democratic process. However, if the other option, one, wants to do that, and two, it's basically trying to kill us, trying to miseducate us, poison us, and kill us. I'll, I mean, just, there's no use for them. Again, I, I, I keep stressing it enough. There was a period in America where the United States political citizenry looked at a political party and said, nope, we are tired of your BS. You are not relevant in the conversation anymore. That's how the Republican Party came to exist. So it's been done before where the American people have just rejected a political party because it was just full of nonsense. They had no substance. And that's what's getting, that's what I think needs to happen. I don't want to encourage it per se, but if you keep going down the extremist slope, guess what's going to happen? If you keep showing up trying to say that people that tried to burn down and, de and defecate and destroy the United States Capitol are political prisoners? What? <laughs> you know, I mean, how how crazy is that? I, I got to take a break and I'll catch y'all on the other side. All right. And we are back. So let me read this before I finish my tirade from the last segment. This is uh, Section 13 of the Virginia Declaration of Rights. This was submitted prior to Declaration of Independence being written. Says Section 13 says that a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained to arms is the proper and natural is the proper natural and safe defense of a free state. That standing armies in times of peace should be avoided is dangerous to liberty, and that in all cases the military should be under strict subordination to and governed by the civil power. And that was written by this guy named George Mason. And when James Madison wrote the Bill of Rights, 
and he moved that amendment from number 13 to number two <laughs> uh, when he did his version of the Bill of Rights for the nation. He basically was George Mason's like mentee. So that's where we get well-regulated from. The whole purpose of having a right to bear arms is that you understand there's a responsibility and there are rules to this game that you just can't, and back then, you just can't have a musket. <laughs> You've got to know what you're doing with the musket, right? And it was, if you've ever seen reenactments, that was, yeah, you knew had to know what you were doing. You couldn't just have one of those. Right? So, that was the whole, that was the spirit. Section 13 of the Virginia Declaration of Rights was the forefather of the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution. That was the spirit. And the language pretty much, it was condensed a little bit, but it's pretty much the same, especially the very first part where it says, well-regulated. That's understood. You, those folks who are trying to sell this bill of goods that, no, no, it, it don't mean that. Yes, it does. Well-regulated, period. Just like no other amendment says shall not be infringed. <laughs> At least that's what you try to play on people. Because none of them should be infringed, right? But the Second Amendment specifically says that the end shall not be infringed. It's really more of a creative way to articulate the fact that it is a right. But you skipped the very first part, which says, well, regulate. That means it was understood that you, you just can't do this. You just can't do it willy nilly. You can't do it recklessly. You got to have some rules. Because there are some people, there were some people back then, they didn't have the diagnoses like we have now. But they knew there were some folks back then that were crazy. They knew that. And they knew there were certain people they didn't want touching the guns at all. Like slaves, for example. Or Catholics. They didn't, they didn't want them having guns. They just wanted the white men from England and some other European nations, descendants, colonists of those nations, to have them. So it was understood from Jump Street that there had to be some rules. Not everybody could get one because they were going to make sure that not everybody got one. But now we're in the 21st century and all of a sudden that's changed. Nobody has amended the Second Amendment of the Constitution to take those words out. Therefore, 
when you take the oath, let me break it down to you like this. When you take the oath to uphold the Constitution and then you pass laws saying that guns shouldn't be regulated, you're violating the Constitution of the United States. You are violating your oath whether you're in the U.S. Congress or in a state legislature, when you pass a law that says without any training, without any restrictions, everybody can just have a gun and walk around and go anywhere they want to. You are violating your oath, ma'am, sir. You are violating the United States Constitution as amended by the second amendment period you got radical groups calling yourselves the oath keepers what oath what oath are you keeping it's not the oath about the constitution that's for sure that's not your agenda at all and you folks up in congress wanting to embrace these people the, what are they the three percenters whatever presenters they are uh, the the oath keepers the proud boys the kkk the white knights you want to embrace all these people you go you go to a jail to visit them right because you're not upholding the constitution of the united states you're embracing people that committed acts of sedition. Some of the people that were under the direction that were in the leadership of the group of the people that are still in jail have been charged with sedition. And you are, and members of Congress are going around, going to visit them, embracing them calling them patriots. That's why we live in a world where young people see that twisted kind of message and they take up arms and they show up in churches and they show up in grocery stores and they show up at elementary schools and they kill people. And you don't want to, you want to have plausible deniability about it. You want to distance yourself from the craziness. That's why, oh, it's got to be mental health. Well, I'm telling you, if you get your wish and we say, okay, well, we're going to put mental health restrictions. Are we going to deal with mental health? I'll let y'all going to have to turn in your guns that are toting them around in the Capitol building. Y'all going to have to tote them, turn them in because you, you, you won't pass the mental health check we literally have people who are doing their best in the name of political discourse to dismantle the constitution and not honor it but yet they want to serve in the government that was created by it And then you're using platforms and saying, oh, well, uh, maybe we need a national divorce. (laughs) 
All we need is 50% of the people in these respective districts to wake up, smell the coffee, and say, we don't want the crazy train running government anymore and vote these people out. Even if you got to suffer for... If, if you got to suffer for just two years of having a Democrat, right? Because I know that's what the people, well, they're Republicans, so I got to. If you want sanity back in your government, you may have to make that sacrifice. That's what the people in New Orleans did, right? So you had a congressman that was crooked that literally almost got a National Guard person killed so they could get money out of a refrigerator, right? That they, from gains that were ill-gotten, right? And the people of New Orleans, and you know, and then the next person up was supposed to be one of his protégés or whatever. They were like, no, we're going to vote for a Republican guy clean house he served two years voted for the affordable care act and then a democrat that wasn't corrupt got in the people of new orleans made that political decision they wanted two years to purge that element away from that congressional district so they could start new. And if the people in New Orleans could do it, surely the people in the ninth and I forget what number, I want to say 10th or whatever district Marjorie Taylor Greene's in, Andrew Clyde, Marjorie Taylor Greene, y'all can change that. Y'all can take two years off of the crazy train (laughs) deal with a Democrat or an independent and then you have your right to vote for a sane Republican two years later. But y'all got to get these folks out. Y'all got to be the ones to do it. If you're in Gainesville, Georgia, if you're in Rome, Georgia, y'all have some obligations. <laughs> y'all, y'all are responsible for these two people in the United States Congress, they've got to go. And even if you've got to deal with a Democrat for two years, okay, deal with that. But you've got to get those people out. Now, I brought Clyde in. I've, I've been talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene, but I brought Clyde in the conversation because in doing, you know, just, you know, looking up some stuff. Remember we talked about Joe Biden making a mistake and not vetoing that that resolution that somehow passed the House and the Senate to not allow D.C. to change the criminal code. Well, guess who was the author of that bill? Andrew Clyde, the man who wears an assault rifle on his lapel pin, the man who tried to shout down Jamie Raskin and defend his comments about the people on January the 6th being tourists. That's where we get that phrase from, where it was like, oh, these people thought they were tourists. It was Andrew Clyde who testified more than once that these people were just tourists. 
It's his narrative that Tucker Carlson is trying to put out there. That they were just tourists, that nothing happened. Those police officers didn't get hurt or killed. Buildings weren't smashed. Offices weren't vandalized. I say buildings, windows weren't smashed. Offices weren't vandalized. You know, nobody went into the Senate chamber or the Speaker's house. That was just a fig new in your imaginary. Nobody chased that black police officer up those steps. That was just a fig new in your imaginary. Nobody saw senators literally running and the vice president has to hide in the basement and the speaker and every, and the other leadership folks have to go to a military base because of tourists. Right, Mr. Clyde? Tourists. Now, I don't have anything against people that own gyms. I don't have anything people to run hardware stores. But if I was a member of those trade organizations, I would not want these people at my national convention in in their respective fields, right? Let alone being in the United States Congress. But that's where we are. And that's why we can't get anything done about guns. Because their intention is not to protect the Second Amendment, their intention is to abuse the right. Because when you when you show up at a place, just imagine. Let me let me break it down so people understand. And it, I grew up in Chicago, as you know, and some of us may remember that, some of us may not. But when we were young kids, when we were in elementary school. There was this group called the FALN, F-A-L-N, and they, like, did some damage, you know, to, like, the federal building downtown in Chicago. I don't know if they were successful in, in bombing it, but I know they, they vandalized it for sure. And they, I think there was a bomb found if it didn't go off. And they went to jail for that, those members that were caught. So can you can you imagine the delegate from Puerto Rico showing up at a federal prison to shake hands and do photo ops with those guys? Do you know how outraged this nation would be that the delegate from Puerto Rico were, was embracing that act. People would have been trying to make sure that Puerto Rico wasn't a territory. They would be, they'd be trying to get that person out of office any way they could. But Marjorie Taylor Greene and Andrew Clyde and the rest of their ilk can show up at a DC jail. Excuse me, at the very jail that you denied the city of D.C. for reforming. That's the thing. The, the, the whole process of the D.C. 
Criminal Reform Act was to reform the system, including the jail. And then you're saying, oh, well, these folks are in these terrible conditions. Well, you voted against the bill that would have helped make their conditions better. And then you show up in their face saying, we're your friends. That's how crazy these people are. Andrew Clyde wrote the bill and then he's he's hugging these guys saying, oh, man, we're going to fight to make sure that your conditions are better. And he introduced the bill that would kill the opportunity to fix it. Now, as has been pointed out <clears throat> by people smarter than me, that these people that are still in the jail were some of the bad people. And it's kind of setting up like a Guantanamo Bay situation, which is not good. That they need to go ahead and, and convict these people and let them go to real prison, right? Instead of taking up space at the jail, but on the D.C. taxpayer's dime, but they're being held over because one of them literally threatened a judge at, at the bond hearing, threatened a judge. You think he was going to make bail? No, he wasn't going to offer him bail. You threatened a judge. That was going to make the decision whether you bonded out or not. These are the type of people that they're hugging and embracing and wrapping themselves around the flag and the Second Amendment and all this stuff. See, it's deeper than, it's deeper than just a innocent debate about the right to bear arms, whether we should have regulations or not, interpreting the law as it was written. It's not that innocent. They are willing to sacrifice the lives of children, white children, to make sure that they have some kind of quote unquote legal protection to overthrow the government the way they want to, to instill the type of authoritative fascist version of America that they want to pursue, where white supremacy still is the order of the day. It just comes down to that, boys and girls. That's 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 just it. There's no way to sugarcoat it. There's no way to, to maneuver around it. It is what it is. And you know, I was I was listening to um I watched John Stewart show the problem with John Stewart and they were, you know, and replaying some episodes, they were talking about the one where they were talking about race and that guy, it was some guy, he wasn't in the studio. He was on, he was on tele, tele, uh, like a zoom. Right. And he, he was saying that, there was no systematic racism in America. And he was like, you know, it's not institutionalized. Show me something where it's institutionalized. And John just brought up, he said, show me one thing. And John brought up housing. Right. And 
Then the guy tried to flip around and say, oh, you just only got one. But you only asked me to show you one. And so a friend of mine who's a friend of the program and was a guest on the show, Mark Talley, he put some out there. And I just, and this is really the gist of what I wanted to talk about. But it's enough time because it ties in to the tragedy that happened today, right? And and he, he was spelling out the impact that systemic racism, institutionalized racism, socioeconomic inequality, what impact is having on African-Americans. He talked about education. African-American students are more likely to attend underfunded and poorly resourced schools, leading to a lower quality of education than their white counterparts. Employment. African-Americans face higher level of Levels of unemployment are more likely to be in low-wage jobs with fewer benefits and limited opportunities for advancement. Income. African Americans earn less than white people on average, which limits their access to resources such as quality health care, nutritious food, and safe housing. Health. African Americans are more likely to suffer from chronic illnesses due to limited access to health care, environmental racism, and stress caused by discrimination. Criminal justice. African-Americans are disproportionately targeted by law enforcement, leading to higher rates of arrest, incarceration, and police brutality. Housing. African-Americans are more likely to live in poverty and experience housing discrimination, which limits their access to safe and affordable housing. Right? All that ties in. All that ties in. Right? And and what I what I was gonna talk about in in spelling out those things was the fact that March twenty fifth was the International Day of Remembrance of the Victims of Slavery and the Transatlantic Slave Trade. Since two thousand eight, the United Nations designated this day as a day to remember the victims of slavery. And in its in on the website it says the day honors and recalls more than 15 million people who were brutalized for over 400 years as a result of a slave system. Now, according to them, two million people died in transit, what we always called the Middle Passage. According to them, two million people died. Some have higher estimates than that, but two million people dying on boats tied to each other. So there were people laying next to corpses, right? That's that was that's brutal and terrifying enough. It was more than that, makes it even more terrifying. But let's we'll go with two million. 
right? Because they say between during the 16th century and the ninth, up to the 19th century, approximately 15 to 20 million individuals were carried against their will from Africa to Central, South, North America, and as well as Europe. They're saying between 1501 and 1830. For every European that crossed the Atlantic, there were four African slaves. So, Eric, what does that mean? Why are you talking about all these? Because it all ties in together. The slave trade led to us being here. And as numerous guests have pointed out in different interviews, a system was created to make sure that there was separation between the enslavers and the enslaved. Even the United States Constitution deemed Africans on American soil as three-fifths of a human being. Thus, they were treated by the Hartford and other insurance companies, and even on Wall Street, as commodity, as property. They were insured as property. And when D.C. and other places, even Britain, even France, when they ended the slave trade, they made sure they compensated the slavers, the enslavers, with reparations. And that goes to the argument about why the brother in San Francisco was catching flack. He's being embraced by the conservatives just because he's not in favor of the $5 million check that San Francisco wants to give the African-Americans there. But they need to listen to what he's saying. Because his thing is, I don't want a check or the promise of a check. I want those issues that I enumerated, those six issues dealing with housing and criminal justice and all that stuff. I want that taken care of put the resources of the American government, the San Francisco County government, the California state government, whatever, whatever resources you want to bear on dealing with those issues and those inequalities. In other words, use the money to dismantle the systemic institutionalized racism that's in America. Use the resources to dismantle the theory and the practice of white supremacy in America and we will be okay. You don't have to give us $5 million in hush money to do that. I think you should do all of it. Is that unrealistic? Probably. But I, I think that descendants of slaves should get compensated for that. And you should dismantle all the inequalities, 
all the systemic and institutional racist policies that are hindering people from moving forward. It's not equal when for every $100 a white person has, a black man only has five. That's a black person only has five. That's, that's not equal. That's not equitable. But you, you're worried about keeping your guns. And why do you want to keep your guns? Why are you willing to sacrifice children in Nashville, children in Evaldi, children in Sandy Hook? Why are you willing to sacrifice them? Because you want to have those guns to make sure that you can keep that knee on our collective necks. You want to make sure that you're still on top of the food chain. And the only amendment that you really feel that can give you that advantage is the Second Amendment. And if we actually follow the letter of the law and actually regulate it, who and what can bear, you know, who, I mean, how, how we can bear arms, not who, but how, right? Then you've, then you feel that you've totally lost control. And I'm not trying to sound dark. I'm not trying to be I'm not, well, I guess I am being antagonistic because I'm against people trying to control me. And that's not a black thing. That's a human thing, right? I don't want people to hold unfair advantage over me so I can do their bidding. I could dance to their tune. Human beings are not wired that way. That's why there has to be a mutual agreement. But when a certain group of folks who desire power at all costs make a move, make a play to have that power, that's why you see the protests. That's why you see the division. That's why you see the unrest because that's not natural. That's not how a society is supposed to work. It's not how harmony exists. Greed and, and gluttony lead to unrest. And it leads to children dying and at some point somehow some way it can't be legislated it has to come from within there has to be some kind of moral compass that's ignited 
in order for people to stop what we see happening before our eyes. It's a it's really against their nature, but but white people have to put other white people in check. I shouldn't say it's against their nature, but for a higher calling such as this, there hasn't been a solid history of that here. It's only been when the masses of people have cried out and fought and spoke out for their rights that those barriers start to move. But you've got to, and and the economic benefits of moving the bar. Because capitalism, as I stated, plays a major role in any progress we have, right? But we gotta we 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 gotta get to that point, and we gotta keep hammering that home. Whether whether it's through this podcast, the other myriad of podcasts that I hear that are espousing the same message, uh, and if they cut us off, <laughs> then it still has to. It's the fight still has to continue until it's eradicated. But I'm just telling y'all, the reason why we, we, this, this, this incredible pushback, I mean, we can talk about abortion and all that stuff, there's, there's some connotation in that too, right? But this pushback that we're getting on this Second Amendment all comes from that 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 vestige of control. And if and if their own children have to die so they excuse me can maintain that control, then so be it. Which is even more reason why we have to fight and we have to push and prod. And, and demand that our leaders do better. Until next time.